4: In an experiment. No,
2: we didn't know
0: Why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's p- I find
5: this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding.
4: Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll hear how the immune system affects gut bacteria and the side effects of a procedure to cool the planet.
5: Plus, the latest results from a 60-year study of fox behaviour. I'm Benjamin Thompson.
4: And I'm Adam Levy. What can we learn from disaster? From one disaster in particular. On Saturday, June 15th, 1991, the second largest volcanic eruption of the 20th century took place, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines.
6: In the shadow of Mount Pinatubo, towns and villages lie covered in a thick blanket of volcanic ash and mud. More bodies are still being discovered. While volcano experts here argue about Pinatubo's future behaviour, the people below continue to move out. It's estimated half a million people have fled their homes.
4: The effects of this devastating eruption were felt far beyond the Philippines. The volcano pumped millions of tonnes of sulphur dioxide into the atmosphere. This chemical formed sulphate aerosols, which, thanks to their size and chemical composition, scattered sunlight. His agricultural economist John Proctor.
7: The Earth cooled by about half degrees Celsius, um, and
4: that's because more solar radiation or
7: sunlight was being bounced into space.
4: These aerosols, and their cooling effect, wear off after a couple of years. So, fast forward to summer 2018, and we're not currently experiencing the cooling from a big volcano like Pinatubo. Instead, the planet has continued to heat up as we've continued to pump increasing amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Now, though, some researchers are asking whether we could one day mimic volcanoes like Pinatubo to cool the globe. Such proposals are called solar geoengineering.
7: The main goal of solar geoengineering technologies is to cool the Earth by reflecting sunlight back into space. And this is similar to how you might stand under a tree during a hot day in the shade uh, to cool yourself off.
4: The idea is that this technique could be used to offset some of the warming caused by carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. The most common suggestion is to pump the same kinds of aerosols produced by volcanoes into the upper atmosphere. And while researchers are confident this would cool the globe, many other effects are less certain. Importantly, it's remained unclear how these solar radiation management techniques would affect farming.
7: Because solar radiation management both cools the Earth and reduces the amount of sunlight that hits the Earth, we were unsure about what the net effect of these forces
4: might be. So reversing some of the temperature rise caused by greenhouse gases reduces heat stresses on crops and so would be expected to benefit agriculture. But by scattering sunlight, these aerosols would both reduce this light and make it more diffuse. And it's unclear how this might impact crops' ability to photosynthesize. Modelling studies have attempted to weigh these factors against each other, but it's hard to be certain what a computer model may have missed. So, in a study out this week, John took a different approach.
7: A key innovation in this study was to use the volcanic eruptions that in some ways inspired geoengineering technologies to study the effect that the technology might have on agricultural production.
4: To do this, John looked at how crop yields varied within individual countries as levels of sulphate aerosols varied overhead in the years before and after eruptions. This allowed him to tease out how cooling and reduced sunlight were affecting agriculture. Environmental scientist Alan Roebuck, who didn't work on this study, was impressed by its approach.
8: I think it was a very nice paper because it actually used observations of what actually happened rather than using models of agriculture or models of amount of sunlight from, from aerosols.
4: But what did the observations reveal? The study found that, yes, the cooling from sulphate aerosols is positive for agriculture. But John found that the reduced scattered sunlight had net negative effects, cancelling out the benefits of cooling.
7: Put another way, if we imagine uh, geoengineering as an experimental surgery, our results suggest that the side effects of the treatment are just as bad as the original disease.
4: And Alan stresses how important understanding the outcomes of this operation are.
8: One of the impacts of global warming, probably the most important one, is how it will affect our food supply. If you're trying to solve that problem of reduction of agriculture with with geoengineering, this study tells you that it's not going to work.
4: While Alan has confidence in John's approach... He points out that farming techniques will continue to change over the coming decades, potentially altering how crops respond to the effects of these aerosols. He also stresses that due to limited observations, the results of this study stem mainly from a single eruption, Mount Pinatuba.
8: They did the best that they could with the available data, but it, it was uh, a one-off, and so we really need to look at it in more detail.
4: John agrees that more detail is needed to understand the effects that solar geoengineering might have on the globe. And while his study suggests that dimming sunlight might cancel out any benefits to agriculture from cooling, he believes that it's not time to stop investigating this procedure just yet.
7: Just because the first test of an experimental surgery had side effects for a specific part of the human body doesn't mean that the procedure should be immediately abandoned. Uh, there are many sort of illnesses that are so harmful that procedures known to cause side effects are sometimes still worth the risk. And so, kind of similarly, research in geoengineering should not be entirely abandoned because our analysis has demonstrated one adverse side effect. There may be many good reasons to eventually pursue such a strategy
4: despite some costs. That was John Proctor, who's at the University of California, Berkeley, and before him, Alan Robock of Rutgers University, both in the US. Check out the study in the usual place.
5: Listeners, we often talk about the gut microbiota on the podcast, and this is, of course, the community of microbes that live in our intestines. The formation of the early gut microbiota, which happens after birth and during early infancy, is believed to be a particularly important window of time that can have long-lasting effects on our immune system. However, while a lot of research has looked at the effects that colonising microbes have on the developing immune system, there has been less research on the other side of the coin, namely how the immune system affects the microbes. Well, in a Nature paper this week, Matthias Horniff has been redressing that balance. He is looking at how the immune system shapes which bacteria become part of the microbiota in mice. This shaping is an important process, as he explains.
8: The current kind of information that we have indicates that after birth, any type of bacteria can colonize the gut. And it is hard to imagine that this would be beneficial for the host. So we would think that the the host organism actually prefers a certain type of bacteria to colonize and that the host should try to regulate this process and and limit maybe colonization by some and favor colonization by other bacteria that are more beneficial.
5: To work out how this might be happening, Matthias and his colleagues focused on a particular immune molecule that's known to impact the gut microbiota in mice. It's called TLR5. Now, broadly speaking, TLR5's job is to recognize a protein found on the outside of some bacteria called flagellin. If detected, TLR5 then switches on an immune response to deal with the invading bacteria. During the first two weeks of a mouse's life, Matthias and his colleagues found high levels of TLR5 in the cells that line the small intestine. Although these levels quickly dropped off, this short window of time made a big difference, as these mice had far fewer flagellated bacteria present in their gut microbiota. Matthias also looked at mice which had been engineered to not have TLR5 in their intestines, and their gut microbiota looked very different, containing a lot more flagellated bacteria. And that's not all.
8: This seems to persist for 150 days, that's what we looked at. And this is much longer than the 30 days that TLR5 is actually expressed in their gut epithelium.
5: This short-lived mechanism seems to have a long-lasting influence. These results offer a new insight into how the early gut microbiota is shaped.
8: I think the take-home message is that there does exist a mechanism in the neonate that favours the colonisation of certain bacteria and disfavors the colonisation of others. And interestingly, this mechanism only exists in the neonate, but the effect actually persists throughout life, at least in mice.
5: Knowing how the immune system shapes bacterial colonization will give researchers a better understanding of what's going on in early life. This window of opportunity is really important, as Lizzie Mann, a gut microbiota researcher who was not part of the study, explains.
1: I think there's been a whole load of evidence showing that it's really there's a really critically important window during development where microbiota interactions Shape immune homeostasis and immune function, but also susceptibility to disease later in life. Um, And we know that the microbiota that establishes that and plays a really big role on how the immune system develops in the gut, what diseases we get. But the mechanisms are still quite unclear. So I think what's great about this paper is it really starts to unravel how that actually happens.
5: This work might begin to unravel how the early immune system modifies the gut microbiota, but it's by no means the end of the conversation we are just beginning to learn how one affects the other. It's a fantastically nuanced system, with many environmental and genetic factors at play. Not to mention, of course, this current work is in mice, and the mechanisms involved might be completely different in humans. Here's Matthias again.
8: I think definitely that it may be different in humans. The interesting thing here is that this type of mechanism does exist, because we previously didn't know this. So I'm I'm sure in humans there are also mechanisms that kind of shape The early microbiome. Whether they are TLR5 or any other TLR or any other mechanism, I don't know. But the human has the same kind of problem to deal with.
5: That was Matthias Hornif from the RWTH Aachen University in Germany. You also heard from Lizzie Mann from the University of Manchester in the UK. You can read Matthias's paper over at nature.com/slash nature.
4: The news chat's still to come at the end of the show, where we'll find out about the mathematicians that picked up this year's Fields Medals. Now though, Shamini Bandel is here for this week's research highlights.
2: The island of Flores in Indonesia became famous in 2003 after the discovery of a remarkably small, extinct human species nicknamed the hobbit. Ever since the fossilised remains of Homo floresiensis were found, scientists have wondered whether the hobbit's genes could live on, in certain local people of unusually short stature. Now the question has been answered. Genetic analysis of these modern Homo sapiens has revealed no trace of Hobbit DNA. Instead, the short height of the islanders may have evolved in response to the same evolutionary pressures that created the original Hobbit, tens of thousands of years ago. Read more in Science. It may be no surprise that microbes mingle on the metro, but which ones are present and where do they come from? A team in Hong Kong studied the bacteria found on handrails in the city's mass transit railway system. They found that during morning rush hour, each railway line had a microbiota characteristic of the neighbourhood it served. But by the evening, bacteria from the whole city had mixed together. Their work helps illuminate the ways in which microbial species and antibiotic resistance genes spread around a city. Find out more in Cell Reports.
5: In the 1950s, a pair of Russian scientists by the name of Dmitry Bilev and Lidmy Otrut started an experiment. They wanted to create a population of tame foxes. The foxes came from fur farms all over Eastern Europe, Although farmed, these animals hadn't lost their natural aggression towards humans. Belev and Trout gradually began selective breeding, choosing foxes with the least aggressive traits. The experiment has now been running for over 50 years and has created foxes with a range of traits, from tame animals which wag their tails and dote on their humans, to foxes specifically selected for aggressive behaviour. Anna Kukekova from the University of Illinois in the United States has taken a particular interest in the fox farm experiment. She wants to understand more about the genetic basis of aggressive and tame behaviour, and the foxes provide an intriguing model. Noah Baker called her up to find out more. Why are researchers interested in
6: studying the fox genome? What is it about it that's particularly interesting to them?
1: Uh We're interested about that because this particular population of foxes which was selected in Siberia for a friendly response to humans and for aggressive response to humans. And we really want to figure out what's going on in their genome which make them to behave so differently.
6: And and how long has this Russian fox farm experiment been going on for?
1: Since nineteen fifty nine.
6: And so now the foxes that they're getting, would you classify those as fully domesticated?
1: I would classify them as pets they definitely don't really show any aggression to uh, people but at the same time they never be selected to be adapted to live in human houses right so it's quite difficult, quite difficult to house break them so I'll, I'll say that they are domesticated but they are not necessary pets
6: before your study what was known about the genetics of uh fox behavior in particular when it comes to aggressive and tame behaviors
1: so they Quite a bit of uh, studies of their behavior it demonstrated that differences in behavior with foxes are genetically determined, but it was very limited abilities to actually understand what kind of genetic differences make foxes to behave that way. Uh, we started um, to do some molecular genetics in these foxes in early 2000s, and we were able to identify uh, regions on fox chromosomes, which... Uh, contribute to fox behaviour, but the regions were very broad. We included tens and hundreds of genes and we could not really say which particular gene um, may have effect on behaviour.
6: What is it you've done in this particular study?
1: So first of all, we assembled the FOX genome, and then we used it us, uh, as a reference for all following up studies. And we sequenced 10 individuals from age population, tame, aggressive, and conventional farm-bred population, which is kind of ancestral population for both. They aggressive to see which regions in genomes of foxes from these three populations actually differentiate them, and using kind of computational uh, techniques, we identified um, 103 regions which seems to differentiate these populations and. You know, some of them may not do anything with selection for behaviour, but we um, think that many, many of them are actually are indeed related for behaviour.
6: Tell me a little bit about the the gene assemblies. What do you think the front runners are for tame behaviour? I suppose which genes are most likely to to be associated with tame behaviour?
1: So there's a wide Some of them have one gene, some of them have several genes. And we followed up in this study just on one region, which contained gene 4S1, and we um, tested if this gene actually has effect on behavior. We see that there is particular variants of this gene which uh, uh, make foxes more friendly. And you know, I want to emphasize that that's not a single gene, and this study just followed up on this particular region because each region is a lot of work. So actually, to find specific gene and variants and so on, so we could not do more.
6: Source one that you've highlighted, how do you suggest that that might have an impact on tame behaviour? What does it do and why why might that make behaviour more tame?
1: We didn't do any functional studies yet, but uh, uh, taking into account that Circus 1 is the main trafficking protein for AMPA glutamate receptors, it's definitely something which is very important for how neural system uh, funct- function, but exact mechanism very still needs to be investigated.
6: How have studies into aggressive or tame behavior been done in the past? Fox is an odd model for this. It hasn't really been a, a common model
1: for this. Yeah, the most common uh, model to study uh, genetics of behavior is uh, mice. But to say the truth, the number of behavioral phenotypes, behaviors which can be studied in mice in particular at the genetic level quite quite limited in terms of social behavior
6: this study has been specifically in foxes to understand aggressive behavior but could it have implications outside of foxes
1: yes yes absolutely because again it's like you know in mice we can study only only speci- very specific uh, elements of aggressive behavior but aggressive behavior is much broader right and in foxes you know, again we cannot study any type of aggressive behavior but we can study something different um, and uh, you know if you find the genes you will know more genes which are involved in aggressive behavior and I think it's, it is very important for human studies, and it's why, you know, our work is supported by the National Institute of Health, because there is not much of information about the genes which actually involved in social behaviour.
4: That was Anna Kukekova speaking with Noah Baker. Her paper was published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. You can find it at nature.com forward slash N-E-E.
5: Right then, listeners, finally this week, it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined here in the studio by Davide Castelvecchi, maths and physics reporter here at Nature. Hi, Davide. Hello, Ben. Well, first up this week, then, this is a story that just missed out on last week's show, but I think it was an important one, nevertheless. Uh, Every four years, uh, the Fields Medals are awarded. Uh, Davide, maybe you could tell our listeners what the Fields Medals are. They are the most coveted awards
0: for a mathematician, especially... or actually exclusively for a young mathematician because they are only given to people who are 40 years old or
5: younger. Well, we've got four winners this year and uh, let's talk about them in turn. Uh, the first one is uh, Peter Schultze. And, uh, and if I was a gambling man, Davide, I think he was probably odds-on to be uh, to be one of the recipients this time round.
0: Yes, although you probably wouldn't make a lot of money because he was everyone's favourite. As a matter of fact, the the question most often heard you know, in the math community was not who is going to win the the medal? It was, who
5: do you think will win apart from Scholze? Oh, my goodness. Well, well, let's talk about what he's actually won it for then. What uh, sort of in overarching terms is his field of research?
0: It's it's a very abstract field called arithmetic geometry. He's famous for uh, devising this kind of mysterious concept called perfectoid space. And it's loosely speaking uh, number theory and specifically these uh, number fields uh, called numbers.
5: And uh, as I understand, he was uh, quite the whiz as a graduate student.
0: Indeed, and he became uh, the youngest person ever in Germany to rise to the level of full professor
5: at the age of 24. Well, so seemingly a deserved winner then. Um, the next winner uh, has got a very interesting backstory, and this is uh, Kautcher Birkar. Indeed, Birkar,
0: who is a UK citizen, he first came to this country as a refugee. He is a... Uh, Kurdish from the predominantly Kurdish region of Iran. He works in algebraic geometry, which is the study of geometric figures that are defined by polynomial equations. And uh, and it sounds like he had rather an exciting time during the award ceremony as well. Yes, the the poor fellow. Soon after he received the medal, he put it in his briefcase, but his briefcase was stolen. And then the organizers decided to award him a replacement
5: medal, which happened just a couple of days later oh so he's actually got the medal in hand yes well, well let's keep going david we're halfway through now and uh, and the next winner is AshK venkatesh he is described as a very versatile mathematician
0: and probably his most um, famous work was also done in number theory on problems that date back to the 1800s but they have been almost
5: intractable until now all right, and well, the last winner then, and, uh, and I have to get his name right, is Alessio Figali.
0: Alessio Figali, yes. He's only the second Italian to win the Fields Medal in history. And he is uh, probably, you could describe it as the only one among the four who uh, works on problems closer to applications, like the differential
5: equations that uh, arise in physics, for example. Well, there are our four winners then, Davide, and obviously this represents sort of quite quite an early peak for these young mathematicians. Where, where do they go from here?
0: Uh, some people say that mathematics is a young person's game. The truth is, there's plenty of examples of people who have done incredible work after getting a Fields Medal, and, and perhaps one example could be Edward Witten, who is the only physicist who ever got the Fields Medal, because he's also a top-notch mathematician, and he's done some really important contributions to mathematics
5: after he got the field medal. Well, finally then on this one then, Davide, and I think it's important that it's raised, uh, four men yet again.
0: Yes, there's only been one woman so far uh, who won. It was the late Mariam Mirhazani who uh, won in 2014 and then tragically died of cancer soon after that. There's been some calls for the awards committee to look into potential bias, because surely there are other women in mathematics who are deserving of a Fields medal.
5: Well, Davide, let's move on to our second story. Uh, And earlier in the podcast, Noah was talking about actual foxes. And in this one, we're talking about the Fox P2 gene. Now, maybe you could tell our listeners at home what that gene is involved in. We know that it's a
0: gene that has something to do with language. There's been studies on uh, certain mutations in in families that have speech impediments. And there's also been studies that have suggested that it could play a crucial role in giving humans their unique ability to talk, which is obviously something that sets us apart from all other primates.
5: I mean, Davide, this kind of a superstar gene, I guess. And, And there was the thought that because it was so special, it spread through the human population very quickly.
0: Yeah, so there was evidence uh, that this gene had spread quickly around 100,000 years ago across human populations. This is something that usually happens when a gene gives you a a particular edge over the people who don't have it. And it's a study that's been cited hundreds of times. It seemed like, oh, finally we found the gene for language. But uh, now there's a second study or new study that kind of puts that into question. And what's this new study saying then? Well, it's putting into question the very basis of the earlier claims. The 2002 study was based on a small number of people of about 20, and most of them were of European background. So it turns out that if you, if you broaden your search, then you'll find that perhaps there wasn't such a quick spread. And in fact, also there's been studies that showed that similar mutations in the FOXP2 gene we're also seen in Neanderthals, and we know that Neanderthals split from humans long before, maybe half a million years ago.
5: Well, does this mean kind of the end of the road then for FOXP2, that
0: it's not involved in language at all? It seems that there's no question that it is involved in language. But as with many traits and even diseases, it, it's, it's usually hard to pin something down to a single gene. The, the Things are always more complex than that, or almost always.
5: Well, what are some of the researchers behind the original 2002 work saying about this new study, Davide?
0: So, the, yeah, the authors of the original study are welcoming this new evidence and they say that even if there was no you know, such quick spread of the gene, it's still clear that the gene plays an important role in our language skills.
5: Thank you, Davide. To read all the latest and greatest science news from around the world, head over to nature.com slash news.
4: That's all we've got time for this week. But before you go, make sure to give us a review and some stars wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get the latest science news to all the greatest science listeners. Until next time, I'm Adam Levy.
5: And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening.